2: This is the Busted Open Podcast. You can listen to the full show Monday through Saturday from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern on Sirius XM Fight Nation Channel 156.
1: Welcome to the Busted Open Podcast. This is Dave LaGreca. On today's episode, we remember, we celebrate WWE Hall of Famer, one of the greatest heels of all time, the Iron Sheep. Who we lost at the age of 81. Myself, Tommy Dreamer, Bully Ray talked to a Hall of Fame cast talking about one of the greatest Hall of Famers of all time, the Iron Chief, right now on the Busted Open podcast. Obviously, one of the great legendary characters and personality in pro wrestling history, and friend of the show, and nation member, the one and only Jimmy Hart. Jimmy. Good morning, and thank you for your time today.
3: Man, good morning to you guys. You know, that little piece of tape you played of The Sheik and Sergeant Slaughter, when I heard Sergeant Slaughter's music, it gave me chills to listen to the response of the people.
1: And and, And that's what we've been talking about a lot this morning, Jimmy, is the response of the people. Whether it's that moment with Hogan on January 24th or that moment in February with Sergeant Slaughter, it's made its moments and emotional connection and there was definitely an emotional connection with the audience to the Iron Sheik.
3: Well, you're so right. You know, I pulled out my 2005 WrestleMania Hall of Fame program uh, last night, and I'm looking at it right now. And I'm looking at the picture, and it's got Hogan, myself, the Iron Sheik, Paul Lorndorf, Rowdy Roddy Piper, Cowboy Bob Horton, and of course Nikolai Volkov. And you out four out of that group of 2005 are gone from us now. It's so tragic. But I remember that night, When the Sheik saw Hulk, Hulk hugged the Sheik, and the Sheik said, I mean, excuse me, Hulk told the Sheik, he said, Sheik, you made Hulkamania. And he said, Sheik said, no, you made the Sheik. And both of them hugged, and I just still remember that by looking at this picture right now.
4: Nice.
1: Yeah, I I think it's true. I, I think, you know, you could say that about both the Iron Sheik and Hulk Hogan. And Bully said it earlier in the show. I don't think you have Hulkamania or it's not as big and it's not as impactful if it wasn't for the Iron Sheik. Jimmy, especially at that time with everything that was going on politically in the world.
3: Well, you're right. And, you know, the the, the Sheik was a real heel, you know, no matter what. And I'll tell you a story from Memphis shortly. But I just got to thinking what what you and Bubba were talking about just then. And nowadays. If you look, the, the heels have a big response on, on social media than the babyfaces. They sell more merchandise sometimes than the babyfaces. Look, the NWO still selling after all these years, and they were supposed to be heels.
4: Uh, Jimmy, have you in your career ever come across a heel who was as important on any given night as the chic was
3: to Hulk in Madison Square Garden in 1984? Oh, my God, it was it was unbelievable, but I've got to tell you a quick story from Memphis, and it makes you realize how this guy really had a lot of heat. I was managing the Sheik uh, in Memphis, and we were doing an interview live on TV now on Channel 5 TV, and all of a sudden during the interview, uh, I see the police start coming in and surrounding the doors around the inside of the building. We don't know what's going on. I just saw it out of the corner of my eye. And then all of a sudden, I see Jerry Jarrett come out behind one of the cameras off off TV and kind of go, cut, cut, go home, go home, go home. You know, the sheik didn't see it. So I was waving the Iranian flag and everything else. Sheik was right in the middle of his interview. And I go, okay, Sheik, we got to go. We got to go. Let's go to natural, We're going. You know, I tried to cut it off as much as I could. He kept going on and on and on. And finally, we got out. We got in the back. And Jarrett came in and he said, look, we got to put you all in this back room. What had happened during our interview Uh, Jarrett and them had put a piece of footage on of the helicopter going down with some of our troops on it that had been shot down. And uh, some of the troops had been, some of our guys had been captured. So while that was happening, we had a phone call at the front desk. Dottie at the front desk told us later that she had a phone call from a man and his son that lived right around the corner from the TV station. And uh, they had saw it and had got a rifle, and they were coming down to shoot the Sheik and me, right? And so all of a sudden the police came out just to make sure it wasn't a hoax, and sure enough, it wasn't. They got a hold of the people when they came in. They got the rifle away from them, so they put us in the back. So that's how much heat the 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 Sheik really had at the time. And, of course, that night on our way to Nashville, uh, I was, it was my turn to drive, so I had Bundy in the car who I was managing, Jim Nighthart and the Iron Sheik. So on the way out of town, of course, being funny and clever like he is, he leaned over and said hey sheik, thank you for the police escort to the city limits you know but that was just Ah. the way it was back then but that's how many people hated the sheik at the time no matter where we went it was phenomenal
4: jimmy like you could never get away with that in 2023 showing that type of footage because the political correctness was there ever a second thought in
3: jerry jarrett's head to not air that footage You know what? I don't think it really was back then because we got away with so much stuff back in the territory days in Memphis, you know, and it was such a crazy territory. It drew great money, but it was just we were so off the wall. What you least expect is what we did. And the people really loved it. You know what? I found out later that seven out of every 10 TVs in that Memphis, Arkansas, Missouri. Tennessee area was watching Memphis wrestling every Saturday morning, but the, but the Sheik was a major part of that. You know, but, but the Sheik was so different. You know, he'd come by my house sometimes. His wife and family would bring him by. They'd jump in the car with me because I drive most of the time with, with the Sheik and I when we we're on doing our little local territory down there. And his family was so wonderful and so great. His kids would play with my little kids, and so he was just so different. But in the car, we'd talk about so many different things about him growing up and and just the way everything really was that was happening in the world back in the day you know but the the sheik was just awesome he really was
0: this is former ufc champion chris weidman do you want to feel what it's like to get in the octagon with me Right now, we are bringing the hardest-hitting MMA talk on the planet to your podcast feeds with Won't Back Down, a XM podcast. Every Monday, I'm speaking my mind and taking you inside combat sports like no one else. Every tap, every snap, and whatever else is on my mind. Download Won't Back Down right now on XM, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcast. Won't Back Down. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed?
1: mr jerry briscoe sir how are you this morning
2: well i come to you with a heavy heart but i'm i'm really really doing good you know i'm blessed with my age and and my health and uh and friends like i have on this show here so thank you god for allowing me to come on and express my thoughts about a dear friend of ours mr briscoe
4: um it's great to have you with us as always and great to know that you're in good spirits and in good health. Obviously today we're we're um showing respect and paying homage to the memory of of the Iron Sheik. When was the l- first time you remember
2: ever meeting Sheik? Well in and, and Tampa, Florida, we had the uh, Sheik we we Florida Championship Racing brought down uh it's really strange that that old that old uh roadmap that Vern Gagne used to use, you know, when when he would break a guy in like uh, like whoever he would break in, he always had them in his mind where he wanted to send them for, for their final development, you know. And Sheik having the background that he had, of course, Vern knew, knew of our background down here and he knew of Eddie Graham's uh, personal uh, love love affair with amateur wrestlers. So she, this was a perfect place for the Sheik to come to, to kind of develop that that style that, that Vern had saw in him and all that. So... It was, it was in the late eighties, I believe. No, our, our late seventies when I first met Sheik, but let me go back Uh I, I don't know how, how much you guys know, know of the Iron Sheik, but, uh, I, I know the guy and I've, I've had conversation with Alan Rice. You ever hear that name? Alan Rice was the, really the father of Greco wrestling, Greco Roman wrestling in the United States. He's from up in the Minnesota area. And Alan, Alan was, was head of uh, United USA RAS and Greco, uh, the Greco division of it. They were over in Iran, and he ran into this young stud that was just learning how to speak English and had a passion for wanting to come to the USA. And, and Sheik, that was Sheik from Sheikh's very early childhood. His passion was to come to America. So he met Alan over there. Allen was this wealthy businessman from Minnesota, and he uh, was wanting to start a, a Greco-Roman club here to to uh, enhance the sport of Greco-Roman wrestling in the United States, because behind freestyle, uh, which is the international style, and folk style, which is the collegiate style, the USA had really fallen far behind in, in Greco-Roman wrestling, which was the, the The forerunner of any style of wrestling there is in the world is Greco-Roman wrestling. So uh, Alan Rice worked out a deal with the director of Iranian uh, uh, amateur wrestling and got got Arne Sheik hired him as a coach of the USA Greco-Roman wrestling and brought him over to Minnesota. Well, as that club developed, and man of the great stars that come out of the Greco-Roman, we're talking about Brad Reagans, you know, some of some of those guys, you know, that, that got into our business as an early trainer, several other guys, and USA Greco-Roman started wrestling started flourishing throughout the world because of guys like Alan Rice and the RNC, who uh, Alan brought over. So that they started developing that program, and Alan felt that they had the program going in such a good, good uh 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 direction that that he wanted he wanted Sheik to 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 do other things. So he got with Vern Ghani, and that's how Sheik got into professional wrestling with through Alan Rice's uh, connection with, with Vern Ghani there. Then Vern broke him in, but uh, like I said, uh, uh Sheik had developed where he was catching on. him, and he was a natural. When he came down here to Florida, he wasn't all there, <laughs> no disrespect but You know what I mean, Bubba Ray, by not being all there. I mean, you know, there were parts in professional wrestling that was missing, like the the working part of it, you know, and, and she getting upset in the ring and, and you having to calm him down. You guys know, you and Tommy know that there's a method in that training that you just got to let all your background, I don't care if you're a pro boxer or, or taekwondo or whatever You got to separate the two, and Sheik was really having trouble doing that. So of course, Eddie put him in the ring with my brother and I, with Mike Graham and a couple other guys that go the Dick Slater's, and we had we had a couple of Japanese, Mr. Saito and Sato down here that were both Olympians from Japan. So we would ever 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 Wednesday or Thursday or whatever day we had off, and we had a morning off. We would all meet down at the Sportatorium, one hundred six Albany Street, where the office was, and had a ring down there. And we we would uh, we would have a training session where we would wrestle a little bit of shooting just to get that out of your system. And man, what matches we had! And I wish I wish they would have kept, I filmed some of that down. There. Jerry, Jerry, I just want to stop you just a little point. It was important
4: for all of you legitimate wrestlers and shooters to get it out of your system, wasn't
2: it? Oh yeah, you had to <laughs> because you didn't want to be labeled. I mean, a lot of us were labeled and 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 you know and 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 rightfully so, but you know, it is something that you've done since you're 6 or 7 years old. All of a sudden you're put in there. Somebody's leaning on it and and you know you know Bubba Ray and and you got Tommy. You guys know just from working, there's a different way of leaning on you, a working leaning on you and a shooting leaning on you. And when, when sometimes you, you cross that line, you know, and Sheik, anytime anybody would even come close to the line without crossing, Sheik would blow up and he would start that Greco and boom, 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 start throwing guys, guys around. Well, Eddie, Eddie was the, one of our stations there. Of course, Eddie never got in the ring with us. He always stood outside the ring and kind of coached us and directed us from outside. So Eddie would see that, and Eddie would have, have us push Sheik until he hit that button. When he hit that button and sheik would start tensing up on and he, and Eddie, Eddie blow the way, all right, guys, come down here. Then he would give a philosophical reason to Sheik why he shouldn't do that. And I think some of those lessons there stuck with Sheik more than the, than the training he had up there. And Sheik, I mean, you know, he had he had a reputation in Minnesota. And some guys, you know, one of a dear friend of mine, which I respect, but he 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 took advantage of Sheik. And I'm speaking to Billy Robinson. Billy was one of the toughest guys in the world, as everybody knows, but Sheik was up there. Sheik was, you know, they were hitting that button all the time, but they didn't know how to control that Sheik like we did, like Jack and I did, and Roop and some of the guys that we had down there working with him. So Bill, Billy, the, the the Wigan guy, the, the badass shooter from the U.K., got in, all right, Sheik, you know, you think you're tough. Get down on all fours. When he got down on all fours, Billy did a cheap shot for him. He dropped his knee across the back of his ankle and broke Sheik's ankle. Well, you're not so damn tough, but you know, that that's you're giving your body to somebody, and then, then you're having somebody to take advantage of. Billy got a lot of heat for that, you know, inside the inside that circle, that shooter circle, you know. Well, Billy, you know, if you if you give your body to one of us, we can do whatever we want to, too. But if there's resistance, you're not going to be able to do it. Sheik, it took everything up from what I understand. I wasn't there that day when, when Billy did it, but from Vern and some of these other guys before they passed, I I heard it took everything that that they had to talk Sheik out of actually going and finding Billy Robinson and, and killing him that night. <laughs> wow. So that was a big deal. So Eddie knew about that. So he wanted to test him down here because he didn't want any accidents happening. And Sheik was like a sponge. But oh, Sheik really loved this business. Sheik really wanted to learn it. So uh, that, that's kind of that's some of Sheik's early development here in the state of Florida. And then you worked
1: with him again in Georgia, correct? Because then he uh, Sheik went to Georgia around 1982, and I know he was the NWA national television champion at that time.
2: Right, and boy, what a difference we saw in Sheik. Sheik, after he left us, he'd gone out to Amarillo. He'd gone to several different territories and started started really picking up and 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 the old guys sitting with you dave dave they know the more places you go the different styles of, of experience you can get it really helps your career blossom i mean if you're pigeonholed into one area for so long what i tell a lot of these independent kids get out of your comfort zone get out and go someplace go to a different part of the country experience how they work in minnesota experience how they work up in New jersey and new york experience how they work out on the west coast instead of pigeon on yourself and, and and here in the south so to say you know you learn that one little soft but these these independent guys that you see that are really prospering they go everywhere and learn every different style and that's so important for these young kids out there but that that's how chic was when we had him in georgia he was ready to to take that next step where the promoter could trust him and put one of those belts on him and then our guys you guys know they're that that's the utmost respect that you can get when a promoter comes to you and said, Hey, you're doing really good. I'd like to like you to carry one of our championship belts. That means he has complete trust in your working ability and your ability not to lose your temper. And Sheikh had developed that style where he, he was legit shoot style, but yet in his mind, everybody knew the, from the audience to his opponents and across uh, any time that he could, he could crack and just, do whatever he wanted to with you. Do you think anybody else could have been as important
4: as the iron cheek was to Hulk Hogan in that night in Madison square garden?
2: Wow. Great question. Any other, any other talent at that time? No, not at that time because we here's Hulk Hogan. You know, I'm a real American, you know, everything about Hogan is American pie, apple pie, and the flag, and all this stuff. Along comes this villainous, villainous guy who not only is a villain, but man, he looks the part. He's got this body that's chiseled and stone When when you pull up a Iranian athlete, the picture you have in your mind is the orange sheet. It isn't anybody else, but an Iranian athlete, whether a wrestler, track and field guy, a guy that you visualize in your mind, like somebody from Iran. Is a is a picture of Archie. At least I do, and I think I think a majority of people do there. So you're right, Bubba Ray. I think uh, Sheik was probably the the perfect foil. At that time, you go back. I mean, we had all the American cowboys. We had we had uh, we had uh, the street thug. We had every every type of character. But we'd never had you know. I I won't say never because our business always have had it somewhere along the line. You know, with the Japanese and the Germans and everything. But this was a different different era and time. This was a brand new time. You know the Japanese and the Germans. That was a war. They would you know even when 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 we were starting a business, they were trying to capitalize on that. Fifty years later, Oh, man, this was a year ago that you could you could really identify with. It wasn't something you had to pull up in the memories of your history books. This was something right here that you could turn on the TV and you could see the evil doing that they were doing over in Iran to our to our hostages and to to our our American way of living. So it had that instant heat that people were able to grab onto, it. and she, it would all seek fault.
1: Hi, everybody. Christopher Mad Dog Russo here. Familiar? You should be. Well, now you can catch Mad Dog's Daily Bite each day as a podcast, where you'll hear my thoughts and opinions on the biggest topics around the world of sports, NFL, baseball, golf, NBA, even the hockey. That you know you can count on. That's Mad Dog's Daily Bite, Drops daily anywhere you get your podcasts, and you can also hear me weekdays 3 to 6 Eastern on Mad Dog Unleashed, Sirius XM Channel 80 or anytime on the sxm app talking the life and career of hall of famer the iron Sheik, and who better to speak to than one of his greatest rivals of all time and that is wwe hall of famer sergeant slaughter sir how are you this morning and thank you so much for the time uh, i'm doing
5: great how are you
1: You know, we've we've been talking, obviously, about the Iron Sheik all morning, celebrating his career, his life, February of 1984, where you and the Sheik cross paths. Sheik's done with his match. He's taking his time leaving the ring. You're coming out for your match. And that little face-off started what I felt was one of the greatest feuds of all time in pro wrestling.
5: Well, thank you, Rob it was my second tour of duty, uh, into the, uh, WWF at that time. And, uh, we did, uh, three televisions in Allentown and, uh, Vince McMahon senior and, and, uh, the, uh, the, uh, Mr. McMahon, uh, junior, which I still call him. Uh, we all went out, uh, for a little, uh, dinner with Pat Patterson and Arnold school and a few others, Andre, the giant. And, uh, Mr. McMahon Sr. always loved uh, Sergeant Slaughter as the villain, and he always called me Sergeant. So he said, it's so good to have you back, Sergeant, to uh, the WWF. There will never be another villain as good as you. And I said, well, Mr. McMahon, if you think I'm such a good villain, you ought to see me as a hero. And he went, what? No, no, you could never be a, a hero. Maybe for a couple of months, but that would be it. But what's your uh, what's your idea, you know? So I uh, I laid it on him about uh, you know you got the Iron Sheik and the Iran situation nobody ever got to punch Ayatollah Khomeini in the nose and for all of what uh, they did to the hostage situation the killing of the Marines at the uh, embassy and and the Black Hawks going down I went on and on and and I kind of hypnotized him a little bit and he's kind of like shaking his head and all of a sudden he came out of that hypnosis state and said oh no 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 you could never never do that uh you you are you always be the 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 villain and so I look over his shoulder and there's his son who's taking over the company giving me the thumbs up and uh so his, his uh Mr. Senior uh turns around and said Vinny don't you ever turn Sergeant Slaughter into a uh a hero okay pop let's go so We do our next television in Ellantown. We do three shows again. I'm on the first two shows. I'm not scheduled for the third. Here comes uh, Vince McMahon Jr. Sarge, you ready? I I was born ready. Vince, what do you want? I want you to do it. Do what? What you talked about last uh, time we were together for dinner. Yeah, when do you want to do it? He goes, right now, exactly, right now. I, I guess came from the uh, announce table. I want you to do it. I don't want anybody to know about it. I'm going to tell the truck to s- play your music, and off we go. And he said, and give me your best general patent promo. So I couldn't even find my uh, campaign cover because, you know, people bring your stuff back, and it disappears. So I just grabbed uh, a camouflage baseball cap and, I, uh, I'm watching the monitor, waiting for my music, and as soon as my music starts playing, I I see uh, Iron Sheik and Fred Blassie. I can read their lips. Wrong music. They're playing the wrong music. <laughs> they thought uh, they were supposed to be getting some type of a, a music. So here I come, and they're, they know nothing about it. And only Vince McMahon and I in the truck knew. So uh, out I go, and we had a little confrontation. He beat the heck out of uh, Eddie Gilbert, and they put him on the gurney, and I grabbed the microphone and just did, you know, back then, uh, as your, uh, as Tommy and uh, Bully know, we all had lived back then. So I grabbed the microphone, and, and I declared war on him, and then uh, we decided uh, to go a little bit deeper. So I said, uh, I've been doing this since I was a little boy in school, Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, of the Marine Corps put my hand on my heart and did the pledge of allegiance and the people went out of their minds. They jumped on their chairs, put their lighters up and we had a a pledge of allegiance as loud as uh, I've ever heard it. And uh, I went from the most hated villain of all time to the the hero of all time in a a matter of five minutes. So I came back in the locker room and, and Vince came and hugged me and that, that was incredible. I can't believe what you just did. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, Vince, you show me your side of the business and I'll show you our side of the business and you'll be farting and silk the rest of your life. So, uh, that's, that's how that all, that's all, that's how that all started. And, uh, I have to say that, uh, it really made a, uh, a difference in, uh, in the sports entertainment business of today. And, uh, we helped uh, pave that yellow brick road, and uh, a lot of guys jumped on it, and in uh, the in the gals, and it's uh, it's an incredible uh,
1: business today. Can't say Sarge. we did
5: it all. A lot of people were involved, but we were part of it.
1: A lot of people look back at the Sheik losing that title to Hogan, like, oh, this is going to change Sheik's career, but just a couple of weeks later is the start of the feud with you and the Sheik and probably the Sheik became even more hated in the feud with you than everything that happened with Hogan back in January.
5: Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Now uh, I already knew what was going to happen. So it didn't matter if he got beat or not, you know, it didn't matter if he lost the title, you know, he came to me and, and said, Budget, the coach, it was Bernard? The coach tell me break Hulk Hogan leg and bring title back. I give you one hundred thousand dollars. I said, "Cheeky, you're going to make more money than you'll ever dream of." You tell that story to Vince McMahon Sr. on on when you go to the Garden on that Monday. Uh, and uh, I said, "Please do that." So then I got there, and I said, "Has the sheik talked to you?" And he goes, "No." I said, "You need to talk to him." Real quick. And so they, they worked it all out. Cheek was a, a good guy to to not do what uh, Vern asked him to do. And I'm glad he listened to me to, to talk to uh, uh, Vince McMahon Sr. And uh, so that it all worked out. But, you know, I knew uh, after uh, the title was lost, I knew where we were going already. So I didn't have any problem with it at all because I knew I could spark that right just by... You know, saying USA number one—that's
1: all I had to say. You know, wow, 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 wow. So a lot, a lot to unpack <laughs> after what you just said. Because first is the bounty of a hundred thousand dollars. That think about how history would have changed if he would have taken that money. And probably Sarge—I I would think that the Iron Sheik had some love for Vern Gagne because Vern Gagne trained him, got him in the business. So he was probably there's probably a lot going on in the Sheik's head, getting that kind of oh, offer yeah. from Vern. And then on sure. the other side of that, like you making sure that he told Vince McMahon because the stories go that, that Vince McMahon always had a soft spot in his heart for the Sheik, because he never took that money and things could have gone south. So, I mean, Sarge, you mentioning that to the Sheik and say you better tell Vince McMahon that probably changed a lot of the history for the Sheik moving forward. Wow. Right.
5: Right. No, I, I met uh, Charles Row in 1972 when he was going through the training camp. I went there to watch with a film crew that was doing a story on a pro Wrestling training camp. And uh, I got to, got to know him had a little scuffle with uh, Billy Robinson. Uh, that's an, another story. But,
4: Wait, uh, Sarge, you got into you know, a scuffle I, with Billy Robinson?
0: No, she, with Jerry Briscoe. <laughs> yeah. just, Jerry Briscoe just told us well, that story. I, it was just one
5: of those, things uh that happened he uh he got me uh element of surprise as we say at right he had me wrestle uh, uh rick fleer you ever heard of that name rick fleer uh <laughs> yeah. and i pinned rick and then they put me with ken patera and i escaped from him so burn said to billy robinson hey what do you think about this kid Cause I, I was still in my suit coat i had a sports coat on wrestling these guys And, uh, you know, I wrestled uh, Rick in high school and I beat him, you know, and and I said, if he can be doing that, why am I on a roof? I was a roofing company with my father. I said, I I should be in a wrestling ring. So anyway, uh, Billy, uh, being the uh, shooter that he was and no nonsense, you know, you got to think about him. He had jet black hair, greased back, one eye, you know, he had one glass eye. And he looked pretty rough. His jaw was much huge, bigger than mine. It was more thicker. And he uh, walks over to me and and he says, you're a C, you know, the the C word. He kept calling me a C word and uh, trying to intimidate me and said, get down on all fours, you see. And uh, so I got down on all fours. And when I did, he dropped his ankle on the back of my ankle and tried to break it. And the first thing that came to my mind was my father being on the roof the next morning by himself, because I was going to be in a cast. So I went kind of (laughs) berserk and, uh, my adrenaline was going and, uh, I had him, I was trying to pull that, that one eye out that he had. And I had it, uh, almost in my, uh, my, my finger and, uh, got him in a, in a hold, And I, I think I, really surprised him and he didn't know what was happening. And finally, Byrd saw that I was getting the upper hand and we were, you know, blood, blood was flowing and uh, he broke it apart and took me outside and, and said, damn kid, how'd you, where'd you learn how to fight like that? I said, I, I didn't learn how to fight like that. And I explained to him why I did it. I said, my dad, it's kind of sad because iron cheek was, uh, planning to come by and, and say, hello. His, uh, uh, son-in-law, Eddie, uh, said that he would, uh, bring him by. And, uh, of course, uh, we're not going to see him now, but we're going to, uh, remember him and say a prayer for him. Uh, there wasn't a better, uh, man in the ring for me to, to perform with. He, uh, he lived, uh, to the highest part of his, uh, gimmick and, uh, we both, uh, enjoyed, uh, ourselves in and out of the ring and, uh, he worked for my dad and I, when he was, uh, first, uh, starting his career, he it wasn't making a whole lot of money. He was refereeing and putting the ring up and asked me, uh, if there was any way that he could work for us. And I asked my dad and my dad said, yeah, we'll put him on the kettle, you know? And so, uh. I got to know him very well and uh, got to know his wife and I uh, got to know him more in Kansas city and, uh, and his children and uh, God bless. Uh, he's he's uh, with his daughter now that that really hurt him. I can't tell you uh, how the conversation was when I called him to talk to him about his daughter and uh, he wanted to kill the man. And I said, "Sheeky." If you go do that, your family will be by themselves, and you'll be in prison. It's not worth that. Let the uh, law take care of that, and you—you'll—you'll uh, you'll regret it if you—if you do something like that. Okay, Sergeant. So I—I okay, I try not to. I said, don't try not to. Don't don't do it. And so he—it—it—it uh, it, it, uh, ruined him. I mean, it—it it killed him uh As you can imagine if if uh anybody that's even listening if your daughter uh, was strangled by her boyfriend i mean I don't know what I would do i don't know if anybody could talk me out of that either but anyway it uh it hurt him and it caused him a lot of problems in his life. He just uh didn't care anymore and uh but he's uh now with his daughter, and uh God bless them.
0: This is former PGA Tour winner, Smiley Kaufman, host of The Smiley Show, a XM podcast. You want to know what I love about golf? I get
1: to talk to some really cool people. I get to walk the fairways of the best courses in the world with the best players in the world. And I get to share it with you every single week. Listen to The Smiley Show right now on Stitcher, Pandora, Apple, or wherever you get
0: your podcasts. That's Smiley, S-M-Y-L-I-E.
1: A uh, friend of the show another legend, and that's Mr. Greg Gagne, who joins us now in our tribute to the Iron Sheik. Mr. Gagne, thank you so much for the time this morning.
6: Well, thank you, Dave, Bully, and and Tommy, for having me on. And I've been listening to the show and listening to Jerry and listening to Sarge, and we'll have to straighten out a few things here.
4: Well,
6: I
1: am
4: glad. we wanted to ask. (laughs) Yeah. The floor the floor is yours, sir.
2: What would you <laughs> like to straighten out? Well, which one should we start with? Uh Roy, All right, let's, one start
1: All right <laughs> I, I, let's start with the big one. Let's start with the bounty, the hundred thousand dollar bounty that uh that your dad supposedly tried to give to the Iron Sheik to break Hogan's leg the night before uh the big change in the championship.
6: Well, if if Vern ever did that uh, I never heard about it and it would have been between him and the sheep, but, uh, knowing my father, the way he was, and he was a fiery guy, but I still don't think that he ever would have, uh, offered that to the iron Sheik. Uh, Kosra was, uh, uh <laughs> in the training camp, he had a lot of great ideas and a lot of thought a lot about himself and how much he could hammer everybody. But, uh, that one, um. I can't buy that one that Vern would do that.
4: Okay. Okay. All right. All right. What other stories would you like to, uh, well, well,
6: uh, the Sergeant slaughter one, uh, I never remember him beating up flair and, and, uh, and Ken Patera. I mean, I was in the camp every day with all of them, uh, unless he came on an off day when just those guys were working out, but I don't remember that one either. And him, uh, doing that to Billy Robinson, uh, Uh, That's another one that, you know, maybe it happened, but most likely I doubt it.
1: Okay. All right. Fair, fair enough. Uh, One thing I know from doing this show for the last 14 years, sometimes stories can be embellished and we're in definitely (laughs) loved the, you know, like that. It's the pro wrestling business, I guess, but let's, let's talk about the iron chic, Mr. Ganya, because, you know, you just mentioned it. Your dad trained the iron chic, um, uh, just talk about th- that time you were there, you witnessed you know the the beginnings of him as a professional wrestler you know, you know go back go back and talk about those times if you will well he was he
6: was a, a a tremendous athlete and he had a heck of a body on him and you know as as a wrestler uh greco Roman, there were very few that that could handle casro and um you know he came in with an attitude uh, a little bit that he was a little bit better than everybody else but Vern liked that. He liked that kind of, uh, you know, uh, confidence in, in an individual. Uh, my father worked with Alan Rice, who, who was the one that talked to Vern about turning Cosgrove into professional wrestling. And, uh, Vern sponsored, uh, the wrestling team in 1972 for the Olympics. So he became a big part of that and watched watched everybody and always watched the Cosgrove matches. And, and Cosgrove was phenomenal. He was, a, a just, a Tremendous Greco-Roman wrestler, and uh, he tried to bring that in the ring a few times uh, during the training camp. And uh, <laughs> one time, uh, he gets on Billy Robinson. Uh, Billy, nobody can turn me. You know, uh, we had just uh, finished. This is probably our fourth or fifth week in the camp, and we went from uh, the end of September until uh, till March first in an old barn with no windows and one light over the ring and uh, on the second floor and. Uh, it was, it was pretty rugged and, and it would get pretty cold at times. And we start out our first hour, we did six hours a day, six days a week. The first hour was calisthenics and they were usually Hindu squats and we had to build up to do a, a thousand nonstop. And we were probably at this time doing sets of, uh, 50 and doing maybe five or 600 of them. And casual was, you know, his body was like, uh, it was like <laughs> my mother actually gave him a name. Because once in a while, my dad, uh, every, about once a week, he would take the whole crew over to my house. My mom would cook dinner for everybody. And she's looking at the Khosrow one day, and she, uh, she had heard about what he did with these uh, Iranian uh, wood. Think they, were, they, they, they had a handle on it, and they went down almost to the floor when they were hanging on your hands. And so they weighed about 80, 80 to 100 pounds each. And he'd take them, and he'd whirl them over his head in a circular motion. And um, we all tried it, and none of the wrestlers could do it. Even Patera, who had set the world record for the uh, at 500 and some pounds for the first uh, press over your head, and he couldn't do it, but more than maybe one rep. And Kazra would do like 15 or 20 reps with these things and do three or four or five sets with them. He was phenomenal, and his body was phenomenal. And my mom was looking at him, and she said, you know, Kazrao, I've got the name for you. You need to be called the iron Sheik, And that's how he got that name.
1: Wow. I mean, that very, just like that. Just like that.
6: So once she gave him the name, he he really believed he was the iron Sheik, and he, he gives Billy all this crap that day that nobody can turn him over. So this is after we've done our squats and, you know, those first five to six weeks, as you guys all know, how tight your muscles get. So Kazo gets down on all four. And Billy uh, came, and he says, okay, coach, you try to turn me. Nobody ever turned me. And what Billy did is he dropped a knee, not on his ankle, but into his thigh. And, uh, oh, Caso started screaming. And <laughs> He could hardly walk. He, he couldn't practice the next two or three weeks um, because he was so Locked up in that in that Charlie horse that he gave him in the leg, but uh, Kozar had a tough time learning those lessons because then <laughs> Vern had us down to the to the TV matches, uh, and they had the six of us sitting in the, in the first or second row, and some of the guys they're they're doing the TV matches and Kozar says nobody I can see that nobody could do that to me nobody could do this, and then somebody threw a drop kick, nobody could ever drop kick me. And Patera and Flair and myself and we were telling Kazoo, you know, hey, Kazoo, you better, you know, knock that sh- shit off here in front of all these people, you know, and relax. But nobody could do that. Nobody could drop kick me. We said, well, geez, don't let, don't let anybody, Billy or Vern, hear about this. So anyhow, somehow uh, Marty O'Neill, our announcer, or Roger Kent, one of them told Vern what was going on. So, of course, they pulled us out of the second row and, nothing really happened. He just said, you guys have seen enough and I'll see you in camp on Monday. So Monday uh, we get there and Billy Robinson is there. Vern's not there yet. Warming us all up. We're doing our squats. And finally Vern shows up. We're finally did our five or 600 squats. And he gets up in the ring. He says, "Kazuo, uh, come up in the ring with me. The other guys. You stay here. We have a little session here, a little talking session about wrestling. So he starts talking. And he's got, uh, pair of slacks on, a short sleeve white shirt, dress shirt, and uh wingtip shoes. And as he's talking to us, he says, you know, you guys, I don't know what you think about professional wrestling, but you know how hard it has been here and going through the camp. And then I get feedback from people that some of you don't believe wrestling is real, apparently. That maybe the hammer locks and the headlocks and everything that we're teaching you don't mean anything, that nobody could be drop kicked. And as he's saying this, he's taking off his Rolex watch and putting it in his pocket. Kosro's standing behind him and he says, Some people think they can't be drop kicked. And he turned around and drop kicked right on <laughs> the chin with those wingtips. Out of the ring he went, down on the floor, out cold. He came up from that one. He's got the bad jaw, and he's still limping on the on on the leg. But I think he finally figured it out that he better not mess with anybody anymore, or be careful what he says. So Vern did put him on the ring truck and putting up the ring. So as as I did, we're the two that got picked for that to learn wrestling from the ground up, and it was a, it was a great experience for all of us. And he was uh, turned out to be, you know, a phenomenal interviewer uh verne i think sent him to eddie graham uh from from uh the awa and then eddie and and uh, the briscoes and then they worked him over pretty good so he he started to learn the art of professional wrestling rather than the uh the shooting that uh he liked so much
4: when you're a an amateur wrestler a collegiate wrestler an olympic uh level wrestler the idea of giving up your body is so foreign. Kurt was able to do it. Brock was able to do it. Shelton was able to do it. Uh, the Briscoes were able to do it. Being able to give your body to somebody else, as opposed to defend at all times, would you say that maybe that's where Sheik lacked and, and never really grasped onto?
6: Yeah, I think so. I think you hit it right on the head there, Bully. He just, uh, uh, You know, and we had it with a lot. I mean, Brad Riggins was another one, Uh, you know, super great guy, but never really. He got to a point where he was able to give up his body, but in his mind, I don't think he projected it to the, you know, I don't know how to say it. He just didn't project it to the, to the public out there. And maybe it was just because his inner self, he didn't feel, feel comfortable giving up his body. Does that make any sense?
4: (laughs) Yes.
0: Yep. And Um, and Mr. Briscoe kind of said then from from there and then, like, they would take the shooters and talk about it, and it is. I mean, I remember Kurt Angle talking and just saying it's the hardest transition to make because you're trained your entire life one way and then you got to go another way. That's the humbling
6: part. Yeah, the MH wrestling's all defensive and, and uh you know, taking your opportunity when you when you create the opening for yourself in wrestling and in pro wrestling, you know, you give your body, you give them the opportunity to get to get the uh uh to get the hold on you or get the move make the move on you. And um it's got to be very difficult for, you know, guys like uh like Kurt and and, and the Iron Sheik to finally just relax and give up your body. And it was probably very frustrating for them at times, too.
1: Busted Open is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcast. Catch the full three hours of Busted Open Monday through Saturday at 9 a.m. Eastern on SiriusXM Fight Nation, channel 156. Go to SiriusXM.com backslash busted open trial to start your free trial today.
0: The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble.